On today's episode, we talk to a very special guest. Her name is Sharon G. Mascarello, and she is not only a professor, but she also is a author of the new 6th edition embalming book. And fun fact for all you listeners out there, she actually taught Benny how to embalm. That is correct, Doc. She was my professor for embalming at Wayne State University. So check out this episode. Let's talk about death, baby. Let's talk about grief and mourning. Is it argumental or existential? What's it mean to me? Let's talk about death. Hi, I'm Benny Capal, and I'm a funeral professional. And I'm Nicholas Capal, psychologist. Hey, Nick. Let's talk about death. Let's do it. Dr. Nick, do we have the guest today? We sure do, yes. my friend. Well, no, I think it's it's a former teacher. It is my former professor, my embalming former professor, Ooh. who just came out with an awesome textbook, the sixth edition of Embalming, History, Theory, and Practice, and it is Sharon G. Mascarello. And Sharon... It is a pleasure to be talking to you again and not being actually in a seat listening to you lecture for once. It is awesome. Well, it's my pleasure, uh, Benny and Dr. Nick. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I want to give a little background to our listeners because this is kind of a really cool uh, situation with um, how our kind of worlds collide. Um, you actually graduated uh, mortuary science with my father. That That is correct. And uh, and then who would have thunk you'd be teaching the children of your classmates um, embalming? And uh, eventually you've been, how long did you teach um, embalming at Wayne State? I taught for 24 years. 24 years. Gosh, yeah. that's a lot of, that's a lot of, that's a lot of embalmers yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah. And thanks. You really punctuate it when I'm, uh, when I'm teaching my classmates uh, offspring. I, so, I appreciate, so, I appreciate so, that shout out. I I had to. I had to bring it up. I know dad <laughs> dad would be very upset if I did not bring up that part of the story. Well, you know you wanted another Kapal, right? You wanted another Kapal in your life. You said it. I mean, we we all heard it. Well, that's that's you know, Dr. Nick, I was gonna bring that up. I you know, I, I got got to look at a little bit at this book. I haven't fully delved into it, but I can say there wasn't the piece on your favorite student, Benny Kapal. Oh, I didn't I didn't see that, that part sh- that of should have been a foreword, book. I feel like. Well, that's, she didn't want the seventh edition. There you go. <laughs> it's coming next. <laughs> it's coming. Well, Sharon, a little bit about me that you probably don't know is that I wrote my dissertation on what the experience of being a funeral director is, which, <laughs> funny story, had a lot of history in it. So a lot of the embalming in this book, I'm going to guess. I haven't looked at it yet. Um, since my dissertation, I have not read anything. Purposely. Good for you. <laughs> It was it was a nightmare. Um, I mean, it was great for everybody out there who wants to become a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, no, like that's that's amazing. A textbook. Yeah, that's quite the accomplishment. Well, yeah, well, let's let's put it in perspective. Um, Bob Mayer and about 25, 30 other individuals um, conceptualized this idea uh, many, many years ago and produced five editions. And while the Library of Congress calls me an author, um, I like to refer to myself as a steward of five volumes of previous work that I simply brought up to date to 2022. Um, and 
you know, changed out a few things to bring it current as, as anything needs to do. The, the largest component were the uh, photographs. They're all brand new photographs, but were it not for Bob Mayer and it were not for his, uh, his colleagues, um, I wouldn't be sitting in the chair that I am. So I appreciate being called an author, but I, I truly am the editor of this edition. But, but I'm going to say credit is given when credit is deserved. And even being an editor, because I've gone through the process of a dissertation, I can tell you that's a nightmare. <laughs> so, again, kudos to you. Give yourself yeah, well, credit. Well, hats off to you, too, for, for the dissertation. I, I kind of stopped before all of that alphabet soup of letters because I knew that Stress and I are not really good bedfellows. And because of the sixth edition, I have about $6,000 worth of dental work. And I might be slurring a little bit, and it has nothing to do with um, imbibition, but it has a lot to do with the fact that I have um, some um, Invisalign <laughs> uh, braces. Hey, you know what? So I was you... grinding. Uh, for two and a half years, I was grinding my teeth at night, and I got, Oof. Uh, <laughs> Oof. I've got a, a, a lifelong reminder of what it's like to uh, produce a Stress. textbook. <laughs> Well, it, it, again, it's important for self-care, right? <laughs> not to mention, not to mention the years of being a professor dealing with us uh, numbskulls and being a funeral director on the side too. So well, you had a lot of stress going on. But nah, Sharon, I really that was the best part. <laughs> Sharon, I want to kind of in in a, in a quicker synopsis, kind of go through like why you became a funeral director, why you became the professor, and then why the book. Sure. So. Um... You know, I think that if you ask most individuals who have adopted uh, the vocation of funeral service, most of them have a personal story. And, and mine is probably very similar to many in that at a young age, I experienced a number of funerals. And, you know, back in the day, which is, I say in quotation marks, um, a traditional funeral, as your dad will tell you, was two full days of visitation and the funeral on the third day. And the cortege to the cemetery and then off to the luncheon and back for flowers, register book and thank you cards. So it was a, you know, it was a week long affair really from date of death until everything was finalized. And uh, my father passed at uh, the age of 13, but prior to my dad's passing, um, there were three other family members and it, it brought me to a point at the, at my father's death, he was 45. It was Thanksgiving evening and he had a massive heart attack and died. And we were a very young widowed family. Um, my mom was 43, my brother 19. And I think that I never thought of funeral service as a career, but serendipitously, my, uh, my dad's mother babysat for the kids at the local funeral home in Sharon, Pennsylvania, also my namesake. And, you know, they got to know um, my family quite well. So when my dad was to, to be buried back with the family in Sharon, PA, um, we met with the funeral director and he opened the door. And it was a much different experience than my experience in Royal Oak, where he had, he had passed here in Michigan. And it was essentially going back to 
um, Mr. Rogers. I mean, he, he came in, in a, in a sweater and he hugged us at the door and he looked at the two young kids and he said, Hey, there's hot cocoa in the lounge. I'll be right in with some cookies and I'll bring my kids down so that you can play with them too while you're here. And it was a whole different experience. It was a lot less formal. And I thought in that moment, it punctuated to me that, Oh, wait a minute. The first thing we need to do is embrace people, bring them into our home and wrap ourselves around them and say, we're going to walk with you shoulder to shoulder and make this easier for you. And that was the quintessential um, spark, I think, for me becoming a funeral director. And that was 1976. In 1986, as you know, your father and I graduated from Wayne State, the premier mortuary school in the United States. And um, the rest is really history. Um, Ten years after I graduated, um, I worked out in the field and I worked for a couple of very high volume funeral homes. And I maintained a connection with my mentor, Dr. Mary Louise Williams. And Dr. Williams was the chair of the program at uh, Wayne State. And she had an open door policy that was extremely refreshing to me. And I remember thinking I would come into school early and uh, sit upstairs and, and do my, you know, a little bit of brush up before the courses began. And uh, it became really a, an everyday situation where I would walk in the office and she would put aside what she had on her desk and she'd say, come on in, what's on your mind? And 45 minutes would go by in a blink of an eye. And I thought, wow, this is really amazing. And she had a million things on her plate, but I never knew that. She never looked at her watch. She never made me feel like I was imposing. And fast forward 10 years, I was filing a death certificate in uh, Detroit, and I stopped in to see her. And she said, hey, uh, by the way, um, we have a faculty member that is leaving. Would you be interested in teaching the embalming course? And I said, wait, what? I, I don't know a thing about teaching. She said, oh, a contrary, you have been doing this for 10 years. You know exactly how to teach the course. Just teach it from your heart. And those are the words that I lived by, as well as the open door policy. And I put my name in the hat and I thought, eh, you know, if something comes of it, it was a year. It was a year I hadn't heard anything. And uh, a year later, I got a phone call and she said, when can you start? <laughs> Gosh. And that was it. 24 years went by. Yeah. that That is really... <laughs> Did you find yourself, uh, uh, when, when you were going through... Um the actual mortuary science, did you find yourself excelling in embalming by any means, form, or shape? You, be I, honest, be open about it. <laughs> oh, I truly will. I First of all, and no one believes me, but I'm pathologically shy, and I have overcompensated, which is why I'm so gregarious, but I'm pathologically shy, and I was that student that literally just sort of hid in the corner, didn't play in any reindeer games. I didn't even know that there was a ping pong table in the basement because quite frankly, I had only gone down there once and it was spooky and I walked back upstairs. But apparently there was an entirely different um, year of mortuary school that I knew nothing about other than going to the corner towel tears, which is where our embalming instructor bought us uh, pitchers of beer. But that's mm -hmm. an entirely different story and involves the Stroh house in Detroit too. Um, so there was a lot of that, but um, no, I knew nothing about embalming. I, I knew nothing at all. I went to the bookstore when I enrolled and I got the embalming textbook, which is not this one. It's the Frederick and Strube textbook, and it doesn't really have a lot of photographs in it. It has a lot of words. And I remember looking at a few of the photos in there and thinking, oh, I don't know, this is really 
kind of crazy. Is this what I want to do? And I came into mortuary school and I was put into a, a squad in the embalming laboratory with six other individuals. And um, they were all like yourselves. They were all sons or grandsons of funeral directors. And I was the unicorn. And to this day, I'm still the unicorn. Um, but I was really, and I felt that I was the unicorn. And I watched them and, and just sort of observed. And I think that my embalming education was observational at best. And I really thought that it was just a part of the school I would have to go through until I did a presentation in class on embalming. And I recognized that this is the most privileged and humanitarian profession on the face of this planet. Because what we do with our two hands and with our heart is something no one else in the world can do. And we're licensed to do so. And I recognized at that moment that, that I had a passion for embalming and I had a connection to it. And it took away all the feelings of either inadequacy of not growing up in a family um, or and all the fear, the fear of not being able to really embrace what it was about the profession. But I think the first time I saw an embalming from start to finish, I was so fascinated that there was no time for anything else. It was like, wow, look at the transformation from start to finish. Look at what we've done. And I think I brought that full forward in my teaching that no matter what you do, you will always do something that will better the situation. You will always make that individual look pleasant, look comfortable, um, be more pleasantly able to be viewed, or at least there's no odor, but whatever you do, you'll make a difference. You'll, you'll do something that, that, um, suspends the reality that death has occurred, but you'll also be able to hand them back to the family. And I, I, I found that to be extremely beneficial, you know, back no, in the I, day, I, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a psychologist and, and I wanted to be a journalist and somehow or other, I was able to really combine all of those three passions into one vocation. We wear a lot of hats. You know that. Mm. No, and I agree with you. And I think the embalming uh, process itself is is beautiful. And I think the problem is people get behind this idea that it's creepy and that um, how do you do it? And, how, and, and I wish everybody had the opportunity to watch a, a now, now I'm going to do my quotes here, a <laughs> um, professional do an embalming. Because if you watch the care, the dignity, um, and the honor that goes into doing that, you wouldn't think it's creepy at all. But that's the problem, right? People don't know what we do, um, no. and 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 that's and that's sad. And I, I wanted to talk about embalming, especially because let's let's get a little bit more in the book, and then I got some questions for you. But um, how did you get into writing this new book? Like, where did this come into your teaching um, scope? So. Um... In 2011, I met Bob Mayer serendipitously again. I'll use that word. Um, it's a good word. I had um, used the university on once a year for a continuing education platform for the Michigan Embalmers Society. 
And I had a gentleman by the name of, and I think most of your listeners will recognize the name, Vernie Fountain. Vernie Fountain was, was our guest speaker at the Michigan Embalmer Society. And Bob Mayer brought um, a colleague of his and drove up from Pittsburgh and sat in the audience. And afterward, he walked up to me and he just said, I, you know, I, I'm so glad that you're doing this. You know, I'm a part of the Ohio Embalmer Association, which is the largest and oldest in the nation. And he said, I'm glad to see that um, Detroit also has this offering for embalmers because there's a lot of continuing education. This is a long time ago, but there's a lot of education for funeral directors, but not necessarily specific to the embalming preparation room. And he said, I, I appreciate um, all of what you're doing. And oh, by the way, my name is Bob Mayer. And I literally um, had a small coronary because I realized that Bob Mayer, like Robert G. Mayer Jr., like the editor of the textbook that I'm teaching from, because at that point I was teaching from the third edition. And uh, he's a very humble English gentleman, extremely mannered, you know, well-heeled and extremely humble. And I couldn't believe that I was standing there talking to royalty. So I thought to myself a year later, well, I've got to come up with another guest speaker. Well, I looked into my textbook a little further and I thought saw another name. I saw Melissa Johnson Williams, whose parents were both educators in Chicago and she was a licensed funeral director. And I said, hey, that kind of looks in the mirror like something that makes sense to me being a female. That would be kind of neat to have Bob and Melissa um, first name basis, not quite yet, but to have the two of them. And I thought they'll never say yes. And sure enough, they did not realizing that the two of them were very close colleagues. In fact, almost family. I invited them, they came and that kind of started us down a trajectory as colleagues. And over time with Christmas cards and, and just kind of reaching out to one another, staying apprised of what was happening in, in our world of embalming, we became family. And uh, when the textbook was coming due to have a new edition, um, the last, the fifth edition came out in 2012. And it was coming due. And Bob would say to me in emails, he would write prolific emails. They're fascinating. And uh, he said, you should do this. And I said, Bob, I, I said, seriously, I I don't know a thing about writing a textbook and I don't know, it sounds like a really large project because he would tell me all of the things he said, you know, what no one really understands is you have no one to talk to because no one understands what you're going through. Probably like your dissertation, Dr. Nick, you know, you, you really don't have anyone who really gets where you are with this other than somebody else who's written a dissertation. Well, there are other people who have written an embalming textbook. So it's a really, really small pool and uh, I said, yeah, Bob, I appreciate the endorsement. I said, that's great. I said, you know, I love you dearly. Thanks. Well, they picked somebody and the textbook was underway under another authorship. And I didn't think twice about it. And then uh, it was actually Mark Evely who one day came to me in uh, my office and kind of poked his head in and said, hey, the American Board of Funeral Service Education, who is the owner of this textbook, is looking for an editor. And I said, wait, what? I thought they already had one. He said, well, you know, something happened and they're re-looking. He said, you should put your, you know, throw your, your hat in the ring. And I thought, well, you know, I did that once with teaching. Never again thought it would happen. And uh, I kind of drug my feet on it. 
because <laughs> of the stress thing. I, I, I kind of knew that it was going to be a big deal if it happened. But at the same time, I, I really didn't think that it would. So I waited and Till I was walking the dogs with my wife and um, she looked at me and she said, honey, are, 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 aren't you going to put in for this? Isn't this kind of the quintessential feather in your cap? Like what an amazing accomplishment. And I said, yeah, I'd really like to. She said, what's holding you back? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't really think I'll get it. And I'm just kind of afraid to go any further with it. It'd be kind of nice. She said, you're going to kick yourself for the rest of your life. If you don't do this, just at least put your name in the hat. What could go wrong? I'm like, okay, what could go wrong? So that night I put in my application and they set a time and a date for a Zoom call. And I think there were about 30 people on this call. And you know me well enough that uh, I like to know my environment. So uh, Benny, I said, uh, who else was on the call? And they had a laptop. I said, show me. So they had to take the laptop and spin it to see everybody in there. Because <laughs> it was like, awesome. I need to know who I'm talking to. I need to know my audience, right? I mean, I just, I just had to know. So uh, it lasted about 45 minutes and I talked my guts out like I do. And uh, that was it. And they said, we'll get back to you in a week. And uh, that evening I got a phone call and it was um, the American Board of Funeral Service Education president. And he said to me, um, can you do this in a year? <laughs> I said what? Yeah, okay. We're we're a no little pressure whatsoever. The, we're a little behind the eight ball. We kind of got get this done. It usually takes about three years to produce. But can you do it in a year? And I said, Yeah. I said, Sure. I don't see why not. And I got off the phone. And I went, What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> well, don't they? Well, don't they always say that about like the the best person for the job is the one that doesn't want it, right? Is the one that is is really like timid about doing it. And I don't know. Um, do they? <laughs> I don't know. I've heard that. I've heard that a lot. Like for yeah. leadership, is the one that yeah. they, the one that says they don't want the job, is the one that they really push to get the job because yeah, there, there's maybe something about that. That person knows it's going to be an enormous amount of work. There's going to be a lot of <laughs> right? sacrifice, and yeah, yeah. And, and the rest then, is the rest is history, isn't it, Sharon? You, it, I mean, well, the book it, came it out. Kind of, it kind of is, but then you know what happened is I did my due diligence, and I spent about oh I don't know. This was the end of. Uh, of uh, 2018. So I had essentially from 2019 January to 2020 January to get this all done. And a week after I signed the contract with ABFSC, I got a call from the publisher and they said, Hey, um, we're going into the sixth edition now. And I noticed that there are all these photographs. There's 340 some photographs in the fifth edition. They're all in black and white and we need to have first person authorization. Can you get that? And I went, Oh, okay. I thought, no problem. I'll call, you know, I'll call Mr. Mayor and he'll say, sure. You know, cause he's, he's a diarist. He keeps a journal every day of his life. And I'm sure that um, he would have all of this in his files. And he said, sure. And I said, yeah, I, uh, it's been a long time. I'm not sure I can go back. And he said, you know, a lot of these people are now deceased. And I said, well, it's probably true. So I went back to the publisher and they said, yeah, we're, we can't put any of them in. And I said, wait, mm. again, wait, what? Well, you're going to have to get all new photographs. I'm like, okay, well, that just reprioritized what I need to do for the sixth edition, because putting in 350 brand new photographs is a whole different thing. And that's not a problem. Um, we'll get it done. And time is kind of ticking because I'm six months into it. I have six months to go. And uh, I started to kind of pull resources and I 
I really did lean quite a bit on Pittsburgh Institute. Thank goodness for uh, for Dr. Barry Lease and for uh, Kevin Drobish uh, for sharing their catalogs with me. And then uh, the pandemic hit. Oh yeah, <laughs> January of course, right? And uh, for everything that I could do. Um, there was no one at the other end to answer the call because as you know, funeral service was upside down and everyone was so busy with what they needed to do for their communities that everyone wanted to help, but no one could. And I understood that. So I was in a vacuum. I was just literally myself. My, my wife had come up North and took the two dogs with her and the cat so that I could have some, you know, some quiet and and do what I needed to do. And I thought, where am I going to get these photographs? This is everything. Well, again, thank goodness for Pittsburgh and, and, and for my library of 24 years and both universities. And I was able to get them. And we produced that book despite everything that went on. So I don't know if you had a chance to look, but the book is dedicated to all the first and the last responders. Because I did, I did, what, I did yeah. pencil my way, finger my way through it. And, yeah. and, and I can't wait to really delve into it because I'm sure there's, there's some good, there's some good pieces that, uh, a, I've probably forgotten through the years, just to be honest. Um, and then B, you know, all the new stuff that that is. And I kind of wanted to talk about that. What was the big difference you found between the fifth edition, which, by the way, came out on the same year that I came to Wayne State, which is interesting. I know, because you were 2013 graduate. I, I was. I was. I remember yes. the new orange book and I was like, oh, yeah. gosh, here we go. Um, but yeah, what was the what was some of the big differences you noticed from the uh, uh, fifth edition to the sixth edition? Well, the most obvious is the cover. <laughs> of course, with Anubis, so, right? <laughs> well, it, and, you know, so so here's the thing, you know, no pressure at all following a legend. And Bob Mayer, and I've said this, I love him dearly, and I've, I've said this to his face, and I've said this a million and ten times, um, he will always be the main attraction, and I will always be the warm-up band. I mean, you know, I am not worthy. I, I just, I, you know, as he's just an amazing, amazing gentleman. So when I was looking at um, all of these photos, I thought to myself, well, if I've got to put in 350 new photographs, why not change them up and put them in color? Well, that was revolutionary because none of the embalming textbooks to date have been in, in color. So I went back to the publisher and I said, you know, hey, um, I don't need to know, but I'm sure it'll cost a little bit more to do, you know, five color artwork. And they said, well, you know, it might be surprising. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to kind of look down that, uh, that avenue because if you're looking at state-of-the-art textbooks in medicine, there are no black and white illustrations. There, you, know, you can't look at a jaundice situation with black and white etchings. I mean, it has to be, it has to be in full technicolor. So I went back to the ABFSE after I had that conversation. They were like, well, yeah, let's kind of look toward that. And I said, okay. So they gave me a lot of um, autonomy. And I learned a valuable lesson, and I think everyone else knows the lesson before me, and that is to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. So I went full steam ahead with that. Well, then I thought to myself, uh, you know what? The textbook cover has either been nothing with words or it's been leaves. Leaves are nice. And I looked at the entire curriculum in the funeral service, mortuary science programs, and they were leaves and trees. And I said, it's a beautiful metaphor. 
you know, you have spring, summer, fall, winter. It's the circle of life. It's beautiful. It's non-confrontational. But if this is really going to be my textbook, and if I'm going to do something revolutionary by putting in color photographs, there should be a color cover. And that color cover really ought to show our, you know, our mascot. And our mascot is Anubis, right? The Egyptian jackal-headed god of mummification and embalming. That's not where it all started. No, not particularly. And it's not, we're not Egyptians and I get that. But we identify by having a mascot and and we certainly did. And I certainly knew going forward, maybe a little selfishly that my students would go, oh yeah, we know it's your book. Anubis is on the cover. Well, (laughs) It all was happening so quickly, and I remember being at the fighter side of at Lake St. Clair at a friend of ours, and I was talking to my wife's brother-in-law, who is a videographer, and he's a super talented guy, and he just shared this product that, project that he did with his um, high school daughter, and uh, I thought it was amazing, and I looked at him, and I said, Tim, you want to do the cover art for my book? And he goes, yes, I've always wanted to do a cover of a textbook. I'm like, you're blowing smoke, right? He said, no, 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 ask my wife. And Donna said, no, he really has. He's That's been on his bucket list. I'm like, who's, who has that on their bucket right, list? The text, okay. I just want to do a textbook artwork. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> put me in the ground after that. <laughs> yeah, he said, exactly. He's like, yeah, that would be the best. He said, he's always reading books. And then he says, you know, this cover art has nothing to do with the book. And I went, okay, we're kindred spirits. He goes, what do you think should be on it? I'm like, well, Anubis, of course. And he goes, well, what else? And I, I kind of started describing and we're sitting at the fire. And of course, my wife being the quintessential retired police officer she is, was rolling her eyes <laughs> going, yeah, like this will happen. And uh, sure enough, um, he started sending me these these drawings and they were like um, the kind that your kids brought home to you to put on their fridge because they were like crayon drawings and mm-hmm. they were hilarious. <laughs> one of them was Sharon's big giant book of embalming. And I thought that was one of my favorites. And I said, well, you know, it's got to be original artwork. You can't just, you know, cut and paste from the Internet. And he goes, OK, so if you look at the book, get it in front of you one more time, um, Benny and, and Dr. Nick, he spent literally like a week doing Anubis, the jackal's lips and his eye. I mean, it ha- he has lips and a nose. Like you'll never even notice that looking at it. And really? the eye, it he had to be does. stern. It had to be, you know, purposeful, but not, you know, creepy and mean. And like some of the tattoos I've seen of Anubis. And uh, it all came to fruition with about eight different designs. And then we started polling. It was like, which would you like better? This one or this one, this one or this one. It's kind of like an eye exam. And uh, we all kind of landed on this cover design. So fast forward to the very first time that Bob Mayer sees the cover of art. And I knew he wasn't going to like it because I already told you he's the quintessential. Mm-hmm. He goes, gentlemen, he's very humble. And the first words out of his mouth were, we're not Egyptians. <laughs> And I said, I know, I, I get that we're not Egyptians, but were it not for them, we would not be doing what we're doing. And Bob, were it not for you, I would not be here with Anubis on the cover of the sixth edition. He goes, touche. <laughs> Very much so. And you got to, you got to put a little bit of yourself into it for sure. So <clears throat> I did want to, I did, did have a question for you that I, I, I wanted to ask with today becoming more and more direct, direct burials, direct cremations, green do you worry for the future of embalming? 
that's, you know, that's a question that is so near and dear to my heart because it's something that I think about all the time. And especially for the, the two plus years that I was working on this, this textbook and, and, you know, Sherry would say to me, you know, honey, um, this could be the last book on embalming. I'm like, oh, you're helping. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That, that's, that's helping. <laughs> um, but I said, you know, you might be right. However, I also think that because embalming in the United States, I mean, Britain, England um, had kind of a heyday in the 1800s of embalming. And, and we were kind of slow to the party after the Civil War. So it's a really early profession in the United States. But like anything in history, history repeats itself. What I believe is that um, a number of factors, the pandemic included, are bringing people back around to the hard reset. What is important? What is important when you've had so much grief? What is important is that you stop for a moment and reflect. You stop for a moment and think, okay, what, what's important here for us to go on? And I think that it lies with us in funeral service to have a conversation different than we ever have at that arrangement conference. When we start to give essentially, and, and I mean no disrespect, but to the, to the public, it's the menu. It's the menu of choices. And to them, they don't see it the way. They don't, you know, you can call it the GPL general place. It's the menu. What do I need to do? What do I need to pick? Can I substitute this for that? Can Is there a special for today? I mean, that's how people buy things, right? So you've got to kind of come back to that. And I think that we need to go back into the seat of education and ministry. Because ministry is really what it is that is our vocation. It's it's all about service. It's all about accommodation. And I think that if we were to tell people that that very first moment that we sat down with them and to say that your person by name and by relationship, your nephew John is in our sacred care. And we would like to talk about how we are going to go forward in caring for him to reach his point of final disposition as you choose. And what we do when we take care of, of, of him. And then we'll talk about the funeral service and what you'd like to do and, and what that looks like and the celebration or the mourning or a combination of those two. But I think we have to dial it back to speaking about, we have, we have that person in our possession. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to give them a final bath, a final bath. Think about when that baby comes into the world and the very first, the very first thing that you want is clean, smelling fresh and to hold them, right? Everyone in the room, when you walk in with a newborn, and I know everybody can't see this because it's a podcast, but they're all going, gimme, 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 give the baby, because they've got to snuggle it. They've got to get it up close, that baby up close and, and personal. And then when they've had their fill and they feel good and their heart is full, then they hand it to the next person to have that same experience. This is what we're doing when we're caring for the deceased. We are taking them into our care. We are grooming them and cleaning them and making them feel fresh and making them look um, amazingly comfortable. 
And I think the families need to understand that that's what we're going to do. Our hands and our heart are going to provide this amazing care. We're going to care for them going out just as the baby comes in. And then we're going to place them in a room so that you can go up and you can approach and you can touch and you can bond and you can connect and you can say all the things in your heart and your head that you, that you need to. And then of your own accord, you can turn on your heel and step backward and take your leave and rejoin. And I think that's important. I think we need to talk about rebonding. I think people need to know what it is we do. I think we need to go back to funeral home tours. They need to come into the preparation room and they need to know what it is that we're doing, not just this clinical care. And clinical care is a good word. It is. But clinical care is not nurturing care. The nurturing is coming from us. We need to focus on what we're going to do for that special treasure in their family. And then, and how would you like this to look for the community and for your friends and your family? We're dropping the ball, that's all. No, I totally agree with you. I think that's one of the things that I argue with Benny all the time is I feel like a lot of people have lost value in the funeral profession, right? Um, and and I hope one of these things that this podcast can hopefully do for people is educate, right? Is that they do a lot more than you think they do, right? Yeah. And what does that process look like? And there's a reason why they go to school for this, right? It's not just they're like Joe Schlo off the street that's like, oh, you know what? I'm thinking about embalming today, you know? <laughs> I'm just going to go see what happens, right? No, this is very professional. It is very... This is a, it's a calling, right? That's, I mean, that was the, one of the things in the dissertation, right? It's it, it, this profession for these men and women, it's a calling. And I think yes. that's where I think we need to do a better job educating people on the value, why this is so important. So I agree, I, Dr. I Nick, you, you've got it. And, you know, we care and that is an important thing for people to understand, but it can't just be a, you know, a bumper sticker or a tagline or a mission statement. We have to show that we care. And I borrowed something from Gift of Life Michigan, which is our organ procurement organization, our OPO here in Michigan. And I learned something about those amazing individuals who we refer to as donors who are giving the most selfless gift, which is part of their human body after death. And I learned that you know, stunningly, that one donor can save eight lives and can enhance up to 155 others. I learned that before the recovery, the team would stand in the room in their sterile OR after they had scrubbed in and they had everything ready to begin the procedure. And they stopped and they stood at the table and they bowed their heads and had a moment of silence. And I co-opted that for the book and I put it in the book, The Moment of Silence. And I thought beyond that and I thought, wait a second, not only should we be pausing, reflecting and bowing our heads for someone who has given the selfless gift after death of their body, but we should be honoring that individual who has had an amazing life and we're giving back to their family for time to say goodbye. We should be holding a moment of silence for every decedent in our care. Every time. No, I, I agree. I agree, Sharon. And Sharon, we got to wrap up here. We're running out of time. But I did want to thank you again 
from the bottom of my heart, I would not be the embalmer I am today if you didn't teach me. I learned a lot from you. Um, and I want to make something known to the listeners out there. Being a woman in the profession that we decided to, to the calling that we decided to go on back in the 80s and the 70s was a very tough uh, profession for women to get into. Um, and they were very, very much not, not the standard. And I think it's incredible, not only how far you've come, but how far this, I mean, now you're going to be teaching others. And I think it's incredible. And so thank you so much for sticking in there and, and being the professional you are. Um, yet again, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Thank you for addressing this. If you haven't, if you're looking into this, you can get this book. Anybody can get this book. If you're interested in embalming or if you're a school looking for this, this is I, I guarantee this is going to be an amazing text. And uh, thank you for being on. Thank you for taking the time. Trailblazer. Well, trailblazer credit where credit is due right that's the important part i'm proud to be a unicorn um (laughs) you're proud to have you on the show and let me just say more more might be coming because we're talking about doing uh some supplemental instructional resources to go with the textbook and one of the things in the works right now is uh what would be called a casebook, which most other professions have in the medical field, where we would uh, describe a case and then we would talk about the treatments for that case. So it would be a lot like, do you use double or single strand of suture? So because you know, you know, you have 10 embalmers and 10 of the theoretical same decedent and you would have 10 different ways to get there. The point is that we all get to a positive and um, and successful outcome, not how you got there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. Um, And just thank you. Thank you for being on. Thank you for your talents and your profession. We really appreciate it. And all of you out there, if you have any questions about embalming, maybe you want to know where to find this book, get a hold of us at our Gmail. Let's talk about death pod at gmail.com. Like us, review us, tell all your friends, spread us out there. We really need to start getting this education on death and talking about death. Because like we always say, Dr. Nick, if you're not talking about death, you are not living.